So today we're going to continue in our series as we're talking about what Jesus has to say to the church, specifically to the church, to us, to you and to me. Now we're studying these letters that uh, Jesus sent to the seven churches in Asia. We find them in Revelation uh, chapters two and three. Now when John is writing the book of Revelation, he's actually writing these uh, to these churches while he's exiled on the island of Patmos. Now, that's an island in Greece, one of the, the island, part of the, the chain of islands in Greece, and very, very close to the country of Turkey. And in fact, if we go back and look historically, these seven, these seven churches were all located in Turkey, what would be the area of Turkey. So he was very, very close to them. And each of these churches were all facing a very unique circumstances. They were fa facing very different circumstances and had different things that needed to be addressed. You see, they were living in a time where everything has had changed. They were in this odd changing times. They were in, in a world and a culture that was changing. The attitudes of the culture were, was changing towards Christians, was changing towards the church. They were, they, it was a very uncertain time for the church at that time. And these are very uncertain times for the church today. It's, there's an incredible number of similarities between those times and what the Christians were facing, what they weren't sure of, and what was going to happen next. Incredible similarities to the church today, what's happening in our lives and what could happen next. So we're taking a look at these seven churches. Now, we're learning about what Jesus had to say to those churches. And as we think about what he said to those churches, I want to remind you that we're really looking at what Jesus would say to these churches today, to our church today, specifically to us today, and make it real personal what Jesus wants to say to me. Now, in the first week, we looked at the church in Ephesus, and the church in Ephesus was a very busy church. They were working very hard, very busy people, and to that church in Ephesus, the first thing we learned is this. To a busy church, to busy Christians, make sure you keep first things first. Make sure that Jesus Christ is always first in your life. Get back to your first love. And then last week, we talked about what Jesus had to say to the church in Smyrna. This was a suffering church. They were going through some very severe persecution. And Jesus says to us when we're suffering, be sure to keep looking up and keep looking forward. This troubled world, one of the things we said last week, this troubled world is not my final home. So he gave us that kind of picture at hope. And now today, we're gonna talk about what Jesus has to say to the church at Pergamum. This was a church that had a lot of struggles, a church that had a lot of things going on, a lot of confusion. It was a confused church. And so we'll talk today and say what Jesus has to say to a confused church or moments in our lives as Christians when we're confused. What do you do when you're confused with, about which direction to go? What do you do when you're confused about what's the right thing to do? What do you do when you're confused as to how to act as a Christian or about how to live? Well, here's what I've come to learn. So I'll start with a statement that I want you to hear. Confusion usually comes when the truth has been obscured. Confusion usually comes in my life when somehow I have missed the truth, I'm either denying the truth, I'm not looking at the truth, or I'm looking for some way to get around the truth. When confused, trust the truth. And of course, 
the Word of God is true. So that's where we're going to start, and that's where we're going to look at this morning. So here's our text this morning. It's in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write these words. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it known only to the one who receives it. There's our text. So what does Jesus say to a confused church, to Christians who at times are confused with what to do next, what's the right thing to say or do? So he gives four statements that I'm going to look at as we look at this passage together. So here's the first one. The first thing that Jesus would say to a confused church, he would say this, he would say this, God's word has authority, so respect it. One of the first things that Jesus would say is that respect the authority of my word. By respecting the authority, it means that you look at God's word and you see God's word as having authority in our lives. Now, we have two references in our text to the idea of a sword. And the Bible is pretty clear and, and, um, and uh, pretty evident as to the meaning of this idea of sword and its symbolism and the picture that we have for it. One of those uh, pictures we have is in Ephesians chapter 6, 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, here's what it says, which is the word of God. Now, Scripture gives us two pictures of the sword uh, from God's word. And the, fist, the first picture is that of a weapon. It's a weapon of a sword. The picture we have in Ephesians is the picture of a soldier getting ready for battle, strapping on the helmet and taking the sword. And the picture we have of the sword is both a defensive weapon and an offensive weapon. The picture of God's word that he gives us in this picture of the sword is that first it's defensive. It's a picture that gives us this idea that, that when we have the sword in our hands, we are ready to fight off the attacks. And God's word gives us that picture in our lives. God's word encourages us when we're under attack, when we're discouraged, it encourages us. It protects us from attack. It fights off the evil one. It fights off some of the, the feelings of doubt or guilt, those kind of things. It, 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 uh, it, it heals us and it helps us when we're hurt and takes care of our deep wounds. But as well, it fights back. So God's word in our lives, like a sword, is not just defensive, but also it has that ability to fight back. It has that, ab that ability to take God's word and to refute the lies that Satan throws at us, to stop the attacks and actually to go back on the offensive towards the attacks that Satan sends our way. So the first picture we have of the sword is that of a defensive weapon or an offensive weapon, but a weapon in our hands. But there's another picture, and that being of a scalpel in surgery. Now, admittedly, 
it's a pretty rough scalpel and it's a pretty large scalpel. But here's the picture from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, here's the part that I don't like. You see, I like the picture of the weapon in my hand. I like the picture of this weapon and this picture of me in battle. I'm armed, ready for battle, and I have the sword in my hand, and with it, I'm invincible. I gotta tell you, I like that picture. But this picture is a picture that I'm not real crazy about because in this picture, it's the picture of me being a patient who needs God's word to do surgery in my life. It's this picture of a, of a patient who's got a cancer, who's got some, some kind of sickness, who has something taking place where God needs to do some surgery and has to go in and cut out that which is bad. I'd rather be the warrior than I would be the sick patient um, needing the surgeon's knife. Now in this letter, both images are there, but the weight of this passage is really talking about the power of God's word actively working in us and through us. The picture is still there of the defensive weapon that we can fight off the attacks. I got that. But the intent here, quite really, quite honestly, is this picture of God's word actively working in our lives. You see, God word, God's word has the power to sort out the motives in our lives. It has the power and the ability to settle confusion in our lives. It has the ability to cut through all of the gray stuff that we put out there, all of the confused ideas that we have. It has the ability to cut through all of that, get right to the motives and get right to the heart. So Jesus speaks to a confused church and he says this, to a confused church, you need the truth. God's word is the truth. And his truth cuts through all the confusion. You need a standard. When you don't trust God's word with having authority in your life, then you are going to be confused. Make sure you hear that statement. When I do not treat God's word as having authority, which means if God says it, then I believe it and then I act on it, then I do it. If you do not treat God's word with authority, you are going to be confused in your life. Now the problem we have with truth today is that today in our world, the truth is very hard to come by. The truth is very hard to find. We live in a world today, thanks to the internet, thanks to cell phones, to smartphones, that, that we can take anyone who has an opinion, anyone can put together a presentation, anyone can make a case and then go online with it and take something that might look to be absolutely true by how they present it or by what they say, and in reality, it's only their fictionalized opinion that somehow they have put together in such a way to make a case. And then what happens, of course, that it goes viral. And once it goes viral, immediately millions of people begin to believe whatever's been told to them and they believe it as truth. Today, all too, all too often, so much of the truth that we choose to grab a hold of in culture has come to us as truth, but when in fact, it's somebody's, somebody's opinion 
And then we try to figure out all of the pieces and we try to figure out the truth by someone's opinion. Uh, we, we today have a lot of people that look for the truth by polls. You know, we're going to ask a lot of people what you believe to be true. And if enough people say that it's true, then we'll lean in and think that it must be true. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if in this world, um, how confusing it can be and how confusing it is when every single person out there with a phone or with a camera can, can spin their truth in this culture and somebody will believe them. Um, friends, do yourself a favor. When it comes to the culture, when it comes to the, this world in which we live in, you do, you do yourself a great favor by turning off all of the cultural news feeds, if you will, and just stopping and taking your intake from God's word as to how you approach life and how you approach living in this world. You see, God's word is true. Respect its authority. Let it be the standard for how you live. Do what God's word tells you to do. It's called obedience. And then watch how much clearer your life gets. Just stick with God's word, what God's word tells you to do, and watch how much clearer and how much simpler your life gets. Today, my prayer would be that some of us would settle once and for all um, that you are going to start trusting God's word. That you would settle once and for all, what God's word says to do, I'll do it. What he says, don't do, I won't do it. Learn to trust him. Learn to trust him, not your opinion. Learn to trust him, not someone else's opinion. Learn to trust him, not your feelings, not your reasoning. And life gets clearer and gets less confusing. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're not ready to do that. But maybe you could start with a prayer that says, Lord, uh, it's hard for me to trust your word. It's hard for me to trust uh, your commands and to do certain things, but make me willing. Help me to get to that place, Lord, where I'm willing to trust. And maybe that's the, start, the right step for you in the starting place. So Jesus would say at first, he would say, if you want to start sorting out the confusion to a confused church, he would say, respect my word as, as, as having authority. That's the starting place. Second thing he said, says to us in the text, he says, don't buy into the lies. The second truth would be don't buy in to the lies. In, uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, Jesus begins by offering to them some things that they were doing very well, because the bottom line, they had been faithful. They'd been working hard at doing the right things, and they were getting it right. Um, they hadn't renounced their faith. Even when one of their own were martyred, even when the pressure was great, they had, they had not renounced their faith. So God says to them, hey, you're doing that right. You're staying true there. Man, good for you. But in spite or despite your faithfulness, you've got a blind spot. Yeah, wouldn't you say it's true of us? You know, we, we oftentimes will say, well, man, I'm getting 90% right. Well, 90% is really good, but then I have that blind spot. So, so Jesus says to them, you're doing really well. You've got some things you're doing right, but you've got this blind spot and it's pretty critical. Revelation chapter two, verse, uh, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Let's talk about those. Now, here's what's happening. They had actually stood their ground. They had actually stood for the truth, but they began to listen to and to believe the lies of the evil one. They had taken some stands. It's a pretty critical issue, but there's some other issues that were coming in that they were beginning to waffle on. They were beginning to waver. They were beginning to buy in to some of the lies. Warren Wearsby wrote these words. He said, as it, as it relates to this church at Pergamum, he said, Satan had not been able to destroy them by coming at them as a roaring lion, but he was making great inroads as a deceiving serpent. So let me explain that a little bit. Have you ever noticed at times in your life how you can be attacked on some key area? Someone can attack your faith. Something can attack your faith. And you're seeing very strong and resolute about it. So I take this stand against this. And yet at the same time, there's these little compromises in the background. There's these other areas in my life where I'm a little loose on and they begin to creep into my life. That's what's happening here. So let's look at what was happening in, the, in this city of Pergamum and in a church of Pergamum. And as we look at that, we'll see what they were struggling with. We'll see the lies that they were struggling with. And, and you'll see how incredibly similar the battle they had fits to where we're at. Now, there were three distinct things that uh, Jesus gave, that Jesus said in his words that John wrote for us. He said, they were living in the place where Satan had his throne. Second thing, they, some of them were believing in and following the teachings of, teachings of Balaam. And the third thing was that there were people, part of their group, who were part of this group called the Nicolaitans. Three references to three very distinct, distinct things or three distinct groups. And each of them have some insights into the lies that we struggle with. So the first lie is this. The first lie that we struggle with is this. And, and I, think, I, I think I've seen this in my life. I, I'm sure you've seen it in yours. And it's this lie that creeps in that says, listen, I think we can fit in. I know that I'm a Christian and I might be a little odd in this world, but I think we can fit in if we just compromise a little bit. If we just lighten up a little bit, we can fit into this culture. Let me give you some explanation. Jesus says this. Um, uh, he would tell us, he would give us this reference that they live in this place. And the, the, the statement is, I know where you live. It's the place where Satan has his throne. Now, quite honestly, we don't exactly know what that means, but I'll give you a couple of ideas that we have. And, and they all kind of fit into the picture. So some think that that was a reference to the temple that they had in that city to Zeus. In fact, the god Zeus there, the people believed that Zeus had all sorts of power and all sorts of powerful rulers, and they all operated out of this particular temple that was located above the city. In fact, you could look up from the city streets, you could look up and you could see this ledge that they actually nicknamed Zeus's throne. So one picture is that perhaps that's the pic that that's the, the image that Jesus was referring to when he said Satan has his throne there. There's a second piece that sometimes we think might be the case, and that is in Pergamum, the Roman government was very, very strong in that city, had great Roman influence in that city. In fact, if you lived in that city and if you were walking anywhere near one of the many temples that were there to all of these different gods, people oftentimes would be stopped by the Roman authorities. They'd be given a pinch of incense. They'd be required to take a pinch of incense 
And then they be told to go into one of the temples and offer up the incense as part of a sacrifice. And as they did that, they were to say the words, Caesar is Lord. So if you're walking by, you'd be stopped. It didn't matter who you were, didn't matter what you believed. They would stop you, require you take a pitch of incense, go into one of the temples, and you were to offer up that incense as part of your sacrifice, as part of your worship, and you were to say, Caesar is Lord. So that could be the picture that we have when, when Jesus says Satan has his throne there. The third piece, that, the third possible uh, similarity or, or reasoning for the statement, for the words would be this. Outside of the city of Pergamum, there was a temple to a God that, that reportedly healed people. So if they were sick and sickness was very rampant at that time, they'd go to this particular temple and they'd ask and they'd pray for healing. People that were sick would go and ask for healing. The temple is still there today, so you can still see some of the, the remains. Now catch this. The symbol of this healing God was actually a serpent. So stop and think, does a serpent remind you of any other time in the Bible where a great lie or a liar presented himself? That's actually right. Go back to Genesis and we have the serpent. So we also think that maybe that's the picture. Now, it really doesn't matter which of, the, which of these three might be it because they all lean in the same direction. Um, this lie is the lie that we've battled with here is this lie that we can just fit in. As a follower of Christ, I can fit in. If I just lighten up a little bit or maybe give a little, maybe compromise a little, I can fit into the culture and I really want to fit into the culture. Let me explain a key thing that was happening in Pergamum that will help you understand this. You see, in Pergamum, uh, they were very, very inclusive. Uh, they didn't demand that you worship any particular God, but they did demand that all gods were given equal status along with Caesar. See, they didn't care if you said that Jesus is Lord. They were fine by that. You could declare that Jesus is Lord as long as you also declared that Caesar was Lord. They had no issue if you declared that I'm a follower of Jesus and Jesus is Lord, as long as you also declared that Caesar is Lord. You see, they tried very hard to make sure that everybody fit in, that it was all inclusive. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Lord, whatever other God you want, they can be Lord. Everything is all good. But here's the problem. A Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, can't say Caesar is Lord. If you're a person that says Jesus is Lord, you can't say that anyone else is Lord. Only he can be Lord. Friends, I love to fit in. I, I mean, I love to fit in. One of the things that I've, I've seen in my life as a pastor, so I've been a minister for all these years, one of the things is that whenever people find out I'm a minister, it always changes a little bit the relationship. I've shared this with you at different times, but when people ask me, so hey, Scott, you get to know someone, say, so what do you do for a living? I kind of, with a smile, I say, oh, I'm in sales, you know, and see if they let that go. Then priest says, oh, you're in sales. Well, what do you sell? And then I kind of laugh and say, well, I'm a minister. And they go, yeah, I guess you are in sales. But it always seems to change things because I'm a minister and then they begin to think about, you know, how they have to act or whether I'm going to judge them, all those kind of things. And so I've worked hard my whole life to be a regular person, to, be, to fit in, if you will. I've worked hard to be real, to be relevant, to be normal. But here's a statement I need to say to you. But friends, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there, are in, there will be an inevitable time in your life where you will not fit in. Now, I'm here to help people 
I mean, one of my goals is to let people know that Jesus Christ loves them. He died for them. He can change them. He can redeem them. He can bring us peace. He brings us hope. So I live for that. So I, I certainly want to be friends with people. I want to fit in, if you will. I want to be a part of that culture so that they know they can trust me. But I've come to realize, friends, in this life, if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, there are times when you just will not fit in. And so don't try to compromise to fit in. Don't try to kind of lighten up to fit in. There are times where we're just not going to fit. There are times when the conversations that I'm a part of are not going to be clean, are not going to be wholesome, are not going to be healthy, are not going to be respectful. Um, they're not going to be affirming of other people. There are conversations at times where I can't fit into that conversation. Times when there's going to be attitudes that just are not acceptable. Uh, that, that I, I can't condone the attitude. I can't agree with or endorse it. Times when there are actions, times when people want to do things or are doing things that I, I can't condone, I can't be a part of it, and I can't participate in it. You see, the Christians in Pergamum were not going to fit into that culture. It was a very, very, very pagan culture. And so they were, they were not going to fit in. And then he says this, some of you hold to the teachings of Balaam. So he starts by saying, so if you, if you think you can fit in, please know as my follower, it, there's going to be a time where it just isn't going to work. But then he also adds this, on top of that, there are some of you who hold to the teachings of Balaam. It's in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among of you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, we're not exactly sure what the teachings of Balaam were, but I can give you some background that kind of help clear up the picture. So the background is, is Balaam is an Old Testament prophet. You can go back and, and read the, the story of Balaam in Numbers, and I think Numbers 20, chapter 22 through 24. So Balaam was an Old Testament prophet, and he was a real prophet. He was a prophet of God. Uh, I mean, when God spoke to Balaam and who the people that Balaam uh, blessed, they were blessed and they prospered. The people that Balaam cursed, uh, they, they failed and, and uh, were not successful because God was speaking to Balaam. So there's a king called, uh, the king of Moab, his name is Balak. And the Israelites had just moved into the territory right next to Moab. And Balak was afraid of them because they were huge. There was a massive number of them. And he was afraid that if they decided to, they could easily come and conquer him. So Balak wants to do something, but he knows that he's, his army is not strong enough to take on the army of Israel. So he knows of Balaam and he knows the power of Balaam because who Balaam uh, blesses, they are successful. Who Balaam curses, they fail. So he goes to Balaam and he says to Balaam, hey, listen, you're a prophet of God. I got these group of people that just moved in, these Israelites just moved in next door and I don't like them and I want, I, want to, I want to take them out of the battle, but I can't win. So what I need you to do, I need you to call upon your God and I need you to curse them. So he's offering big money. I'm going to pay you lots of gold, lots of silver for you to curse these people because I'm afraid of them. And basically what Balaam says is this. Uh, he says, well, I got to tell you, um, I can't. I, I can't curse them. He's, I can't curse them because God has blessed them and I can only bless or curse who God tells me to bless or curse. Now, four or five times, he, Balak goes to Balaam and says, I want you to curse them. He, four or five different times. He, ta he takes them to different places, a little different view, looking down onto the Israelites. And from this angle, he says, so I, I want you to do this. And Balaam keeps saying, I can't. I can't bless 
or I can't curse unless God tells me to bless or curse them. So he said, so I can't do it. Four or five different times. And every time Balaam, every time Balak wants Balaam to curse them, he, Balaam ends up blessing him. And of course, Balak gets really, really angry. Now, there's a key here that I need you to see. Um, the first key is that Balaam doesn't say he won't curse them. And he doesn't say, I would never curse them. He would not say, hey, listen, I'm a servant of God and who God has blessed, I will bless. And who God has cursed, then I will curse them. But I will, I will not do that because I follow God. He never says that. He just says that he can't. He doesn't say that he won't, but I can't. The second thing we find, which is interesting in the story, is Balaam never just says no and then walks away. The very first time that Balak comes and says, hey, I'm going to give you a lot of money if you do this thing, all Balaam has to say, even if he stays with the statement, I can't, all he's got to do is say, I can't, and I'm out of here. And all he's got to do is walk away and leave. But he doesn't do that. He seems to keep engaging with, with Balak along the way. Now, he keeps engaging to the point where after four or five times, Balaam actually says to Balak, listen, I can't curse them, but there's another way that you can get them. Why don't you let God do your dirty work for you? Now, you can, all, you can, you can re read this story and get all these pieces. So what Balaam actually tells the king is this. He says, these are God's people. They live according to God's laws. If you really want to get them, then just do this. Send into their camps, send into their cities, a whole lot of pretty women to entice them. And he said, what will happen over time, they will get into all of these immoral relationships. And not only will the men sleep with these women, but because they'll fall in love with these women, they'll begin to worship their gods and pick up their practices. Then what will happen is God's going to get angry at them for doing this. And then God himself will come and punish them. He'll do all the work for you. If you read the story, Balak does that exact thing and it works. And while Balaam is doing that, my guess is he probably thought that he was actually still honoring God because he doesn't curse them and he feels like maybe I've kept my end of the deal. He kind of has this warped idea. They said, well, I can't curse them uh, because God hasn't, so I can't do that, but I can tell you how to go about and get this thing done. Friends, don't believe the lie that if you can rationalize your bad behavior, then it must be okay. And we're really good at rationalizing. It kind of goes like this. I know that this is wrong, but God will forgive me, so I guess it's okay. Or maybe this one. I know that I'm supposed to forgive, but they really hurt me. I know I'm supposed to forgive them no matter what, but they really, really hurt me. So, so I think it's okay that I don't forgive them. I know that God tells me to be generous in my giving, and I, I really intend to. One day, when things are a little better, then I'll give to God. That's rationalization of the wrong kind of behavior. Balaam kept talking to King Balak when he could have said just no and then walked away. Here's a little lesson for you. The longer that you don't obey God's word, the more confusing it will get. Because don't forget, the longer that he kept talking to Balak, Balak kept offering all sorts of gold, all sorts of silver, all sorts of wonderful things. His life would be better. He can better take care of his family. He'll be more enriched. And I can just see his mind going, I could have all of this, and I'm still going to honor God because I won't curse them 
I'm just telling them the truth of how the people of God are and a different way to go about this. The longer you stay disobedient to God's word, the more confusing it gets. Balaam, all he had to do was say no, turn around and walk away. And then he adds in the picture as well, he said, and also some of you, not only do you live in the place where, where Satan has his throne, not only are some of you acting like Balaam, but on top of that, he says, and some of you hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. That's in verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So quickly, what did the Nicolaitans believe uh, and teach and what did they live out? These were people that by all outward signs were Christians. These were people who had made their profession in Jesus Christ. They were following Christ. But many of them either came from and or certainly held that Christians were free to have immoral relationships, to have sex outside of marriage. And in fact, not only have sex outside of marriage, but in fact that they could have illicit sex as part of their faith. And here was some of the rationale. So they actually held that the command of God against you know, uh, ritual sex, against illicit sex in the temples or with other people's spouses or people outside of marriage, they believed that that was all part of the law of Moses. That was Old Testament law. And of course, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to set them free from the law. So their teaching was, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not under the law. And so now they believed and they taught that, and there was a significant group of them, they believed that Jesus had set them free from the law so they could have sex with other people. They could have illicit sex. They could have uh, even orgies as part of the Christian faith because it was all a part of this freedom that they had. They actually would even thank God for the illicit relationships that they were about to have with one another or with the temple prostitutes. So that was what their teaching was. Now, actually, there's two lies in here that they were accepting and that also affects us. The first lie is this, well, God wants me happy. So if God makes me ha wants me happy, then it must be okay. Um, it, 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 if God, want, God wants me to have better than what I have now, so it, it's okay then for whatever I decide to do. I can't tell you how many broken marriages have happened because of the attitude that says, well, God wants me happy. And I look at people who've walked out of their marriage, who have abandoned their marriage, who have been unfaithful in their marriage, who have this idea, well, I wasn't happy in my marriage and God wants me to be happy, so they went and did whatever, and you know, they're still not happy. Um, that's the first lie. Well, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to enjoy my life. And so anything goes. The second lie we see wrapped up here is this. Well, if so many people say it's okay, then there must be some truth to it. If so many people arrive at the same conclusion, then there must be some truth to it. So it must be then okay. You see, the Nicolaitans actually had quite a following. They had a whole teaching uh, they had a whole practice, they hold pre whole presentation, and they had it all down pat as to how this illicit behavior was actually okay, and they had a name. They were the Nicolaitans. They actually had a, a church name, if you will. They were an official group. Imagine if the Nicolaitans were here today with the internet, with their own blog, with their own news channel, and with their own TV shows, what a following they would have. So that's what's taking place. Now, all of these lies all have just a little bit of truth to them. 
like this. It's okay to want to fit in. And it's okay to try to fit in. But don't compromise to do so. Sometime right isn't always, the right thing to do isn't always immediately seen. And it can be hard sometimes to walk away. Well, that's true, but you still have to walk away. Yes, God does want you to be happy. He does. I mean, he's the one who created happiness. So he wants us to be happy, but not at the expense of your soul. God does want you to be happy, but he'd rather have your happiness come from a joy that's deep within in your relationship with him and not just because you do anything you want along the way to try to keep yourself happy. Let me give you these last two things. And so the one thing, this is the second truth he says to us. He says, number first thing, respect my word with authority. Second thing is don't buy into the lies because it's real easy for us to do that. Then this third thing he says is this. He says, just stop it. Actually, the word he uses is repent. In verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So the, the, the third thing he says is pretty straightforward. He says, just stop. Just stop the behavior. Recognize and admit that these lies are real in our lives. In fact, here's my encouragement to you today. If you want to start this process of getting, getting rid of the confusion, getting the, doing the right things, just start by admitting that, yeah, I do fall for these lies. Yes, they are real in my life. And uh, admit that we do rationalize. I do lean in when I should walk away. I do stay in the conversation when I should get out of the conversation. I dance really close to the edge when I should get away from the edge. Yes, I'm willing to allow some of the little things that slide into my life just to help me fit in better or to somehow rationalize them. Admit them, confess them to God and say, Lord, with your help, you're going to have to help me. But with your help, I'll say no more. So Jesus says this third thing to us. He flat out says, repent. Fr friends, there's no, other, there's no other teaching I can give that will somehow make it easier or more simple than to simply say, at some point in time, when you look at some of the behaviors that every one of us struggle with, we just have to say no. And we have to say, God, I'm gonna need your help because it's really hard, but no, I will not do this anymore. I will not dance so close to the line. Let me give you the fourth thing. The fourth thing. The last thing that Jesus says to a confused church. The last thing he would say is this. Remember this church, this is not the end. We touched on this last week a little bit. Remember that this world is not your home. So don't live for today, live for eternity. The last thing that Jesus would say to a confused church is don't live for this moment, live for eternity. Verse 17, our last verse. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. There's two great pictures here that Jesus gives to us. The one he says this, if you stay faithful, he'll give you some of the hidden manna. Now, remember when Israel was wandering in the desert, they had no food. They had no ability to get food. They couldn't have gardens. They were wandering, and of course, they're in the middle of the desert. So every day, God would feed them. Bible tells us every morning they would wake up and the ground would be covered. We don't exactly know what it was, but the ground would be, would be covered with, um, with some kind of edible bread-like 
food from God. So every day they could go out and eat. I'm sure they got tired of it, just like we get tired of eating the same thing every day. Probably got tired of it, but every single day, God makes sure that they were fed. In fact, when they built the Ark of the Covenant, inside of the Ark of the Covenant, they put a bowl of manna. So they would always remember how God every single day met their every need. Now we also know without going, having the time to go into it, we also know that manna was one of the Old Testament symbols of what Jesus would come to do. And so we have this picture, but it says they'll receive some of the hidden manna. What does hidden manna mean? Perhaps it means this. You will never know that Jesus is enough. You'll never know that Jesus is all that you need until it's only Jesus that you trust. Maybe it means that you'll never know that Jesus is enough until Jesus Christ is all that you have. And so he says this, for that person that overcomes, for that person that stays faithful, for that person that doesn't cave in, who perseveres, when you decide to stay faithful, you will see Jesus Christ active in your life like you've never, ever imagined before. I've said this before to you and, and some pictures of the, of the most current generation. Part of the problems that the current generation has is that just when things get tough, they want to bail out instead of stick in. For Christians, when, when, when things are tough, if we, won't, if we won't sacrifice, if we won't compromise, if we won't somehow give in, but if we'll stay tough, if we'll stick in the fight, you will see Jesus active in your life. You'll see the Spirit of God active in your life like perhaps you've never seen Him before. That's the hidden manna piece, I think. We say, yeah, I know Jesus, I see Him, I love Him, I worship, I follow Him, but it's in those moments where we stay faithful even when it's hard that we see Jesus in a way that we'd never seen Him before like you've never imagined. And then I love this last picture. He says, so if you're faithful, not only will I give you the hidden man, and not only will you, will you see me in a way you've never seen me before, but he also says, I'm also going to give every one of you who perseveres, every one of you who stays faithful, I'm going to give to you a white stone with a new name on it, a name that no one else will know and no one else will recognize but you, and you'll know that it's your name. Now, we're not completely sure uh, what this white stone meant, but we have some really good pictures because we know some of the history of that time that help us with that. So some think that the white stone was in reference to how trials were done back then. Back in that time, there'd be a trial, and whether it was before a judge or a jury, after they would deliberate and come out with their verdict, they would take either a black stone and put it into a bowl and the black stone would mean guilty or they take a white stone and present it and put it into the bowl and that would mean innocent. That could be one of the pictures. Another thing would be people oftentimes had these bracelets made with white stones, small white stones, and on these stones they would have, have etched in or painted on uh, their name. And it could be a name they chose. It could be their name. I mean, it's, yes, it's their name, but it could also be a nickname or something that was dear to them that reflects who they were. That could also be part of the picture. There's a third one, and that is the white stone actually might be a symbolic of the priest, the high priest. When he would go into the Holy of Holies, he would put on this gold breastplate and in this breastplate were stones, and they would consider them white stones or actually diamond-like stones. And on each of those stones was the names of one of the tribes. So here was the picture. When the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, 
before God, he would go in representing all of these different tribes. And so that's also a good picture. Now, all of these pictures are really great and could easily fit. But I lean towards this last picture. In, uh, in the historical times, a white stone with an individual's name on it was given to the winners of the games that the athletes would compete in. You know, the games like we have the Olympics coming up. They would compete in these games, and those who would win would be given a white stone with their name on it, and that stone was their ticket to get into the award banquet. There'd be these huge, lavish banquets for all of the, all of the government officials, all of the kings, all of the queens, all of the people who were the in people, but the athletes would come to receive their rewards and they would get a white stone with their name on it. In fact, the same thing happened with, with multiple times in banquets. If a king or someone of wealth was gonna have a banquet, they would actually put the names of the people on a white stone and you'd be given this stone and that was your ticket to the entrance in. And when you came with that, that stone, you were allowed in. No one else, because there's no party crashers in eternity. And I love that picture. I love that picture. Folks, folks, this is not the end. This is not the end where we live. This is not our final home. So stay faithful. And when you stay faithful, you will receive your personalized ticket to eternity, to the great banquet of the redeemed. And I like this idea that it also says, and there'll be a name on it that's only known to you. If my name Scott is on it, Scott Slocum, everyone would know that who I am and that's my name. But what's interesting, it says, there'll be a new name on it and a name that's only known to you. So what is that? Well, again, we're not sure, but here's how I envision it. I can easily envision that I think this is the sign from God to every one of us, the sign from God that I have always known you. When you're going through something difficult, when you're confused, when you're battling some moment, don't you have that feeling sometimes like, does God see this? Does God know this? I think this is one of these little signs from God that says this, so you stay faithful and I'm going to give you a stone with a name. And when you look at that name, you're going to realize that I've always known you. I've known everything that you've gone through. In fact, I know you in ways that no one else does except for you. I think what's interesting and what the picture I like is I'm gonna look at that stone and when I see this name on it, I'm gonna immediately recognize that that's me. That's me in the hidden parts where no one else sees. And yet God says, yeah, I've always known you. When I was a kid growing up, my dad always called me Tiger. No one else called me Tiger. Uh, my dad's nickname for me was Tiger. But what was also interesting is that my dad, whenever he would write me notes, so I would get letters from my dad once a week uh, my dad would send me a letter in college. Uh, I, my mom, maybe once a week. My dad would send them more sporadically. But every time my dad would send me a letter, because back then, of course, no email, uh, no cell phones, I'd get a letter, and he'd always put in 20 bucks, he'd put some money in it, and he'd always say, hey, I love you, and he would sign it Tiger, but he never spelled Tiger correctly. He always spelled it Tigger, Tigger. Now, Tigger happens to be one of my favorite characters, so I got that, but he always spelled Tiger, Tigger. Uh, to this day, when I see Winnie the Pooh and I see Tigger, I think of, I can see those letters in my hand with my dad telling me, I love you, Tigger. Um, if I were to get a white stone with Tigger on it, I would immediately say, 
You know, my dad knows me, and there's only two of us that would know that name. That's the picture, that when, that when you remain faithful, you're gonna receive that white stone. I don't exactly know how that looks, but you're gonna see that white stone, and when you look at it, you're gonna say, how about that? God has known me all along. In fact, he knows me like no one else. What a great picture. Let me give you literally a final statement, and I'll pray and we'll close. I've been thinking about these final words for for quite some time, put a lot of time into this. So here's a statement. Obedience to God, obeying what God says is never confusing. Just think about that. Simply listening to God's word and then doing what God's word says is never never confusing. So often I'm confused, but I'm not confused about obedience. Disobedience is what brings confusion. When I'm trying to figure out how not to obey, when I'm trying to figure out how to rationalize how I can get out of this, that's confusing. But obedience to God's word is never confusing. So to a confused church, to a confused Christian, to the times in our life where things seems to be just confusing to us as to what to do, trust God's word and treat it with authority. Let me offer a prayer. Father, thank you for your truth. As I've been studying for this message and for this sermon, uh, you've been speaking directly into my own life. When things seem to get confusing and when things seem to get out of place, I can typically stand back and take a look and I can find that there's areas in my life where instead of running away from the temptation, I've been leaning into it. Instead of just doing what you've told me to do, I try to figure a way, a, a way around it, how to get around it. So Lord, I simply say to you, would you help me? This morning, I would just confess to you, I want to learn more and more how to treat your word with authority. For those areas where I'm not being obedient, I want to stop it and I'm gonna, I'm gonna need your help to help me. But Lord, I say to you right now, I wanna trust your word and I'm gonna act on your word and I'm gonna trust you to take away the confusion. And I can't wait for the day when I get that little stone that has my name on it that no one else will recognize. But immediately when I see it, I'm gonna say, oh, how about that? Jesus has always known me and he's always been with me. Thank you for that truth. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.